What is the greatest pain you have experienced? Was it grief? A loss of a loved one? A child? A spouse? A brother or sister? A parent? A friend that was closer to you than a relative? Is your greatest pain a struggle with depression? Feeling isolated, alone, empty, like like a sponge that's been wrung out of all of its moisture? Or is your greatest pain a battle against a physical injury, a disease, a deformity, or a disability that is a constant presence that hovers over your life? Is your greatest pain something that's relational, a divorce, a betrayal, a rejection from a parent, a friend, a boss, a loved one? Could it be prejudice or hatred because of who you are, what you look like, or where you're from? Is your greatest pain an abuse that has been done to you? Sexual abuse that overwhelms you at times with shame, even though you are the victim? Could it be physical abuse that you've endured? This cave is very much like the tomb that held Lazarus in John 11. Inside that tomb was Mary and Martha's greatest pain. The grief of their brother's death threatened to overwhelm Whelm them. It was also the place where we see into the very heart of God in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the most beautiful verse in the Bible is the shortest. John 11.35 simply says, Jesus wept. In a moment, we're going to listen to the passage of Scripture from John 11, and then we're going to begin to explore this incredible encounter with Jesus where he culminates in the resurrection of Lazarus. But before we do that, as we start, I want you to picture this cave as holding your greatest pain, the wound of your heart, whatever it is that nearly overwhelms you. It may be unknown to others. This cave with its darkness, its decay, its emptiness, its isolation represents incredible pain. But here is the amazing news. Jesus has entered that pain. The God of the universe stepped into the pain of humanity and truly understands your grief, your shame, your wounds, your depression. We see that revealed in this encounter with Mary and Martha as the God of the universe. His heart is broken and he weeps with them in their pain. Jesus shows how much he loves them. And in that same encounter, we see a reflection of how much he loves you and I. Because he loves you just as passionately, just as strongly, just as intimately. And if you will allow him, Jesus will enter into your deepest pain. And not only bring life in the midst of it, but just as he did with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he will use it for glory that transforms that pain into something beautiful and that brings glory to the Lord. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ that intercedes for us, that not only understands our pain, but willingly embraced it himself and experienced the full depth of human grief and suffering, yet without sin. Jesus truly is amazing. And my prayer is that Today, as you begin to explore John 11, and in the weeks to come, as we 
uh, go deeper and deeper into this passage, that you will see Jesus with fresh eyes. You'll see Him in a beautiful way, and your faith will be strengthened. It will be strengthened to the point that you'll allow Him to bring light and hope into your darkest pain. For you'll begin to see a glimpse of how He can transform even that into praise and something that is glorious. Now let's go to the scripture together and explore John chapter 11, verses 1 through 37. Now a man named Lazarus was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay ill, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, This illness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Since we began... Um doing more and more of the services online because of the virus. I've been using the, the Luma Project um, because it has all four Gospels there as a way to help us see a little bit more into the story. And I know um, that the Jesus who portrays the real Jesus in the film is a little old, granted. He looks a little old, a little gray in the beard, probably waited. He's a little snarky. Um, I kind of like that personally. Um, but for the most part, it's helped us step into the story. But in this particular one, when we really understand the text, we discover that they somewhat missed it on this part. Because when it says that Jesus was deeply moved, that he was troubled in his spirit, it means that he was absolutely overwhelmed with grief. And when it says that he wept, it wasn't just a tear. It was sobbing. The God of the universe broke down in grief. And that to me is absolutely amazing. Because remember, he is God. He knows, he's told his disciples that he is going to wake up to resurrect Lazarus. He knows that he's going to be transformed in just a few moments of time. And yet the God of the universe breaks down and weeps with his friends. That should give us incredible hope. So we're going to begin to explore this passage, and I hope that today that God will speak to you wherever you are, whatever pain, whatever scar that you have. Just as we said in the introduction, you have me in stereo today, filmed and live. That's probably more of me than you want at any point in time, but I wanted to use that cave just as a picture of understanding that Jesus knows your deepest, darkest hurt, and he longs for you to give it over to him. Here's how I want to begin with this part of the message. Every wound that we have carries a scar. It may be visible, it may be invisible. Every scar 
tells a story. And when we give our scars, our wounds, our hurts, our griefs to the Lord, Jesus can redeem the story of our scars so that they reveal God's glory and goodness. That's the message of hope that I I pray you will discover today. So let's begin to explore this passage. And I want to point out five things to you today that I hope will be an encouragement and help us deal with the wounds, with the pains, with the hurts, with the disappointments in our lives. And first of all, we see from this passage that the purpose of Jesus gives us the right perspective on death and on life. What you think about death ultimately determines how you live. Your concept, your understanding of what happens after you die will determine how you live. Our understanding of death and dying says a great deal about who we are and the freedom with which we have to live today. And here in our passage in John chapter 11 and the following chapters, it gives us a context to truly shape our understanding of life and death and the hope that we have in the resurrection. A right understanding of death and the goodness of God who loves us enough to die for us will change how we live. And the purpose of Jesus that we see in this passage gives us the right perspective on death and on life. So let's look at the verses here again in John chapter 11. If you have your Bible with you or or an app, I want to invite you to turn there um, because I want you to, to immerse yourself in the scriptures and to think about it in the days ahead. John 11, verse 1, as we heard before, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. By the way, that event hasn't happened yet. John is simply telling you to give you context to know who it is. He's assuming you've already heard the story. It is that Mary whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sinisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus' purpose in absolutely everything that he did was to bring glory, to bring honor to God the Father, to show the greatness of who he is. When that becomes the purpose of our life as well, it gives us a right perspective on everything that we do. It gives us a right perspective on ourselves, on life and death, on the lives of others, on those that we love. It changes everything when we choose to live for the glory of God. Jesus' purpose through the death and resurrection of Lazarus ultimately was to bring glory to God And it served as a foretelling of our salvation. You see, we have pictured in what Jesus does for Lazarus, what he will do for each and every one of us when we die. That at his return, when he calls his people, both those who are alive and those who are dead, to him at the resurrection, everything is changed. And it is incredibly beautiful. But Jesus starts with an understanding of the purpose. He's trying to teach the disciples and you and I to put God's glory as the purpose for which we pursue everything in life. Your work, 
your relationships, even your, your uh, recreational activities, everything that you do and I do can be done to bring honor and glory to God. But we have to choose whether we're going to live for ourselves or we're going to live for God's glory. Now think about it. From a human standpoint, Jesus has just heard that the friend he loves is ill. His natural inclination would have been to leave right at that moment and to go and see and be with his friend. Whether he could get there in time or not, he would have wanted to be with him, with Lazarus, and with Mary and Martha. Now the truth is, most likely by the time he received word, Lazarus was already dead. In fact, he states very clearly to his disciples that Lazarus is dead. But Jesus, his life, the timing of everything that he does is not controlled by his human desires, but by the glory of the Lord. Jesus understood that Lazarus' illness ultimately would lead to honoring the Lord. And from our own limited perspective, it seems so difficult when the one we love dies. Partly that's because we have a very limited understanding of God's goodness and God's glory. Because that's what changes our perspective on death. So it begins here with making sure, choosing to make the purpose of our life to live and to do everything that we do for God's glory. For us to really begin to understand that, we need to know more about God. Because the only reason I will truly want to live for God's glory is if I have discovered that God himself is incredibly glorious. Thank you for fixing that. So, first of all, Jesus' purpose gives us the right perspective on life. Secondly, the passion of Jesus frees us from the fear of death. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. These were his friends. These were people he enjoyed spending time with. Whenever he would come near Jerusalem, he would stay in Bethany at their home. He wanted to spend time with them. We see them showing up time after time in the scriptures. Especially, we see a lot of the conversation that he has with Mary and Martha. He loves his friends. Jesus is passionate about his friends. So here's the simple question. Are you a friend of Jesus? Do you see yourself as his friend? Jesus calls you a friend. Here in John, earlier on, he says that those who follow him are his friends. Jesus loved these three individuals absolutely passionately but they are simply a model for how passionately he loves you and I. And I love these three people because we learn so much from them. We learn a lot from Mary about the heart of worship. We learn a lot from Martha about how to serve others and to focus in on using our gifts and abilities and hearts for the Lord. But Lazarus is, to a certain degree, mysterious because we never hear any of his words. Nothing that he says is recorded in the scripture. But what we do know is that Jesus said he loved him. He loved him passionately. 
What I like about this is, is Lazarus, as far as we can tell, is just an ordinary guy. But he's a person who's loved by Jesus. He's not an apostle. He's not the author of any New Testament book. None of his words are recorded. He lived in relative obscurity in a tiny village of Bethany, but he was a faithful friend of Jesus, and Jesus loved him. He loves you as well, just as much, just as deeply, just as passionately. If we really believed how much God loves us, our fear would diminish greatly, even our fear of death, because true love casts out fear. So in the beginning, we see that Jesus shows us the right perspective, his purpose changes us when we learn to live for his glory. Secondly, Jesus' passion gives us comfort. And thirdly, the patience of Jesus was for the greater good. Now, this is a puzzling, puzzling verse. Look at it, what it says here in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Does anybody find that a little confusing when you look at that? I mean, because it's very intentionally placed in there saying that this was Jesus' choice. He chose to stay there. And if, and if we get the wrong perspective, we can look at that and, and think maybe Jesus is, is cruel. I mean, why would he wait? But he's told us why. He's told us that this is for the glory of God. And true love waits for God's timing, for God's purposes even over the desires of their own heart. You can see, if you look at this from the perspective that really is presented here in the scripture, you can see that this is recording, John is recording some of the conflict in Jesus' own heart. I'm sure that everything within him wanted to be with those he loved. But he wanted to do the will of the Father and bring him glory even more. The point ultimately of this is that Jesus was more focused on something greater. He was more focused on God's glory than the immediate need. He was more focused on showing the greatness of God and growing the faith of his followers. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. The first thing that he tells his disciples is that he is going there to wake him up. And he uses sleep as a metaphor for death. And he clearly tells the disciples that he's dead. So he knows his purpose. He knows what God has called him to do, but he waits for God's timing. Now, there are many different cultural reasons as to why this would be. Four days after death within the Jewish culture, within that society, would have been the height of mourning. It also was a time after which, um, from three days on, um, there was within the the mystical teachings of Judaism, there was a belief that the spirit hovered over the body for the first two days. But from the third day on, death was absolutely sealed. There was no possibility of one coming back to life. That's a belief that they had. And so Jesus waits four days to when he is going to arrive to defeat any questions so that everyone who hears of it knows this is a miracle of God that has absolutely no other explanation other than that God raised him 
from the dead. Well, there's some points for us to look at and to remember. You see, in Jesus, we see that his love waits for the greater good and for God's glory. God's delays are designed for deeper delight. Maybe you're in a season of waiting right now, and it seems like God is silent. Would you remember that simple truth? That God's delays are designed for deeper delight. He loves you, and he wants the absolute best for you. What we see also in here is we see beautifully portrayed the faith of Mary and Martha, how they loved Jesus, how they trusted him. Mary loved Jesus, but her connection to him was dramatically transformed by the resurrection of her brother Lazarus. If Jesus had, a, had been able to show up while Lazarus was still sick and healed him, that would have been an amazing miracle. But it would not have been nearly as transformative in the lives of the disciples and as evidence of who Jesus truly is. You see, raising someone from the dead removed absolutely all doubt because it is this event that proves beyond any doubt that Jesus is God. It is also this event that sealed Jesus' fate. Because from this point on, after the resurrection of Lazarus, that happens just a few verses after what we read, from that moment on, the religious leaders in Jerusalem were determined to put Jesus to the death. In fact, Caiaphas, who is the high priest, prophesies that it is beneficial for one man to die for the nation. And from this moment on, they seek to kill Jesus. They also, after the resurrection of Lazarus, sought to kill him as well because he was a walking, living testimony that Jesus was God. So this event is absolutely critical. It is incredibly clear. It changed Mary. That's why John inserts that little footnote at the beginning that this is the Mary who, who um, anointed Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. It changed her. And the outpouring of love was the only thing. The only way she could respond to the incredible gift of who Jesus was. And the love that she had for him. Mary and Martha grieved over the loss of their brother. But the delight in his resurrection and their new knowledge of Jesus, they would say was worth the price. Because they came into a, a relationship of intimacy with God that was far greater than anything they had known before. When we see that God is both good and that when we live for his glory, we discover that the trials that we go through ultimately have a purpose for us to draw us closer. To draw us more into the very heart of God. Jesus came, his purpose, his life mission was to show us the Father. In his delay in coming to Bethany, Jesus gave a far greater gift to Mary, Martha, to Lazarus, to the disciples, and to us because he shows us the very heart of the Father. He says later in John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the greatest treasure in all the world. 
And so Jesus uses this event to show us and to show Mary and Martha and the disciples who he truly is. They now knew the Father. They now had a picture of him and a picture of Jesus in a life-giving way that was far deeper than anything they'd experienced before. Jesus' purpose gives us the right perspective on life and death. Jesus' passion gives us comfort because he is our friend. Jesus' patience gives us hope in that we have the promise, the assurance that what we go through is worth it because God is working for our good. Fourthly, the promise of Jesus gives us life eternal. That's the message that Jesus wanted to to give in the heart of these verses. Look at it down in verse 22. Um, When we see Martha, verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see the confidence that she has? She knows Jesus is greater than the sickness Lazarus had. But look what she says in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you see how powerful that is? In the midst of her grief, in in feeling overwhelmed, she doesn't know what to ask for. She doesn't know what to hope for. But she knows this thing to be true above everything else. That Jesus is for her and is working on her behalf, on the behalf of everyone else there. And that whatever is his will, will be accomplished. And it will be very good. I find that incredibly beautiful. Even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Do you see the faith revealed here in Martha? Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus chooses this moment, this setting, this incredible miracle that proves his divinity. To show Mary and Martha, the disciples, the others gathered there, and you and I, where we are to place our faith. That our hope is in a person. That Jesus Christ is the resurrection. Jesus Christ is our life. He's the one we're to put our trust in. Just as Martha did. With absolute abandon willing to trust that he is good and what he does is incredibly great. Believing in Jesus gives us everlasting life. That's what God gave us in salvation. He didn't say you have to earn it. You don't have to go to church so many times. You don't have to give so much. You don't have to sacrifice so many things. You need to put your faith in me. That's what I'm asking for because there's nothing else you can do anyway. Everything that you have that you could give away came from God to begin with. The only thing that we have to give is our trust. It is what God desires from us most. 
that it's the one thing we can truly give him. If we believe that he is good, then we begin to believe that even his timing, even the questions, even the circumstances, even the pain can somehow work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You've heard me say this from uh, the words of a friend from many, many times. If we knew what God knows, we would always want what God wants. That's the message of hope that we have. Will we believe him? Well, we've seen Jesus' purpose, how it gives us perspective. How his passion gives us comfort that he loves us. His patience gives us hope that this trial, this too, will work together for good. His promise gives us faith that God is working even in the darkness of our pain. And finally, the part that I I hope I can communicate well is that Jesus' pain shows us how deeply he understands our hurts. The simple words in verse 35, Jesus wept, are incredible. And twice, both right before this, in verse 33, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now that phrase, if we were to unpack what it means in the original language, it it contains with it a sense of anger, a sense of overwhelming, a sense of emotion that is so strong that words cannot contain it. It comes out in a groan. In fact, what it literally means, it's almost, it's almost humorous. What it literally means is, is the snort that comes from a horse. Okay? When a horse is agitated, when it's full of emotion and fury and it just can't wait to charge and, it, and that, that, that breath comes hot pouring out of its nostrils, that's what this word means. That's how emotional the God of the universe was over the grief of his friends. God saw and experienced firsthand what sin and death had done to humanity. He tasted of grief. That's why Isaiah says he is a man of grief and acquainted with sorrow. Our God has experienced our greatest pain. The greatest difficulty that you can go through, that you can imagine Jesus has already experienced. He has already tasted it. And he weeps with us. That's the kind of God of love we have. Isn't that incredible? That the God of the universe feels that deeply. Face it, how many times have you gone through something, gone through a difficulty, a trial, and you feel incredibly isolated, like you're in that cave that I had at the beginning, where no one else knows how you feel? What this passage should tell you is that Jesus truly does understand exactly how you feel. He's tasted it himself. He understands grief. He understands our pain. We have a high priest who has experienced the depth of human emotion yet without sin, Hebrews 4 tells us. 
So he is able to intercede for us, to comfort us, to strengthen us, to walk alongside of us, to be with us, to restore us. Jesus knows your grief. He wept. He was so overwhelmed with grief that he not only wept, that he was moved deeply with anger that overwhelmed him in a way that cannot be expressed in words. Secondly, when we look at Jesus in the broader picture, we discover that he experienced grief, just like what we see here in John 11. Jesus also experienced shame, incredible shame. I was reminded recently of a powerful message from one of my former professors, Dr. Erin Heim. As she taught on the resurrection out of 1 Corinthians 15. And she linked the resurrection to the Me Too movement. She linked it to sexual abuse because of her own experience. Dr. Heim, as a child, was sexually abused by a relative. And she went through incredible pain and deep shame, even though she was the victim. As a result, for years, she hated her body. Very understandable. It constantly reminded her of her shame over what had been done to her. But as she began to reflect upon the scripture, as she began to reflect on Jesus' crucifixion and on his resurrected body, he began to heal her emotional wounds and shame. She began to see that Jesus went through a form of sexual abuse. You see, crucifixion was not only designed to inflict incredible pain, it was designed to be the most shameful thing possible. Unlike what we see in art or portrayed on a crucifix, Jesus was not covered with a loincloth. He was hung naked upon a cross for everyone to see. He was laid bare as people mocked him and shamed him. And she began to to identify and see that, that Jesus really did understand. He hadn't been through the same thing she had, but he did understand her shame. And as she began to see that, she began to think about what happened in the resurrection and especially in the glorification of Jesus. Because you see, after Jesus rose from the dead and after he was glorified, he still carried in his body, even though it was greatly transformed, scars. You see, we we know when we look at the the scripture that Jesus' physical body was different. There was something about it that made him both recognizable and still a bit of a mystery. At first, when Mary Magdalene sees him, she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. But then as he speaks and she looks, she sees it's Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with his disciples and, and he's talking with them. And it's not until they sit down to eat where they recognize that it's Jesus. So there's something different about him in the resurrected body. It's able to go through walls. It's transformed. It's it's physically different, and yet it's also recognizable. But what remained in his body were his scars. Didn't Thomas say, 
Unless I put my hands in the wound in your side and my fingers in the nail print in your hands, I won't believe. And Jesus offers him his scars. You see, Jesus' scars no longer hurt with the pain of crucifixion. They now tell a story of God's conquering victorious glory. That his shame, that what he experienced on the cross now tells a very different story. It tells the rescue, the redemption of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That the God of the universe was willing to enter into human suffering fully and embrace it himself out of love. And now his scars tell a different story. Dr. Heim discovered that Jesus could take her scars and begin to use them to become something that no longer told of shame, but of transformation. That's what happened to Mary and Martha here as well. Their grief, their scars, their wound became something that told of the greatness of our God when that pain was placed in the hands of our Savior. Oh, and gosh. I haven't done this in a while. Can you tell? Yes, yeah, that would be the answer. So Jesus knows our shame. Secondly, Jesus knows your depression. Do you realize that Jesus went through incredible mental, emotional anguish? I want you to, I want you to think about the night before his crucifixion. Before his trial, when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks his disciples, Peter, James, and John, to accompany him. And the scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 through 39, that as he takes them, he opens up his soul to them. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I don't know of a better phrase that can describe the weight of depression than that. He is feeling the full weight of emotional strain as much as a human possibly can bear. And he asks his friends to come with him because he doesn't want to be alone. That's great advice for us, by the way, when we go through seasons of depression, is that God gives us one another to stand with us, to encourage us. And Peter, James, and John didn't do a very good job for Jesus, but it's still the right pattern to follow. God understands that emotional weight that you experienced, that I experienced. But what he was able to do was to take that and submit that to the Father and say, not my will, but your will be done. And he took even that emotional weight and it became something beautiful and glorious. He understands what we go through. He understands your pain. He understands my pain. Whether it's physical, emotional, whether it's depression, whether it's relational. Maybe your greatest pain, your greatest wound is relational. You've been betrayed. You've suffered through a broken relationship. Jesus was betrayed. And Jesus understands just how heartbreaking being separated from the one you love is when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When as he is bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt, 
He is separated from the goodness of God because he is bearing the penalty of our sin. And he cries out, why have you forsaken me? But that cry, even though it is desperate, even though he's experienced that separation, later we see also that his confidence is in God. And his final words are, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. He trusted God the Father and his will in everything. And the scripture tells us in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when we entrust Jesus, who truly understands what you've gone through with our pain, with our wounds, and say, Lord, I cannot bear this alone, would you weep with me? Would you carry me? Would you comfort me? Would you show me how you can use even this for your honor and glory? When we choose to do that, the Lord does beautiful things. Because every wound carries a scar. Every scar tells a story. And Jesus, when we give all that we are to him, can redeem the story our scars tell so that it reveals the glory and goodness of God. Just before we go to communion, I want to go back to the cave, but I want to show you the other side. Let's play the last clip. It's just a minute long. Jesus told his disciples that what was happening with Lazarus was not going to lead to his death, but ultimately to God's glory. This is the other side of the cave where we were before. You see, if we could see things from God's perspective, even our pain, even our wounds, we'd realize that when we entrust all that we are to God, He can take the darkest part, the deepest wound we experience, and turn it into something beautiful, filled with wonder, with glory, and something that points everyone to the greatness of our God. Will you trust Him with your deepest pain? Will you trust Him with your wounds? Will you trust Him with all that you are today? Do you believe God can take even the darkest thing you've experienced and transform it? He's inviting you to trust Him. And let me just assure you, Jesus Christ is absolutely trustworthy. As we come to communion, we remember Jesus' body given for us. That in the flesh, Jesus experienced the full spectrum of human pain and suffering. And he willingly did it for you and for I. Jesus suffered in the body. He took on human sin, human pain, human grief. He bore that and more in his body as is represented in the bread. When we take of the bread, we remember. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus, that how his death brings us life. We also proclaim that Jesus died the death that we deserve on the cross. He was buried and rose again and came out of the tomb alive in newness of life. We proclaim that he has been glorified. His body carries the scars of wounds he took for us 
the scars and the shame of the cross, the grief of separation from the Father, the pain of suffering, now proclaim His glory, honor, and joy. You see, that's the beautiful thing. If we could truly understand it, God can turn even our deepest wounds into joy. That's what Jesus has done. And it's absolutely beautiful. So in the bread, we remember his suffering, his body given for us. In the cup, we remember his shed blood that covers over our sin, over our shame. And we recognize that he has now clothed us in his righteousness. Before God, when he looks at you and I, if you've trusted Jesus as your savior, he sees the sinlessness of Jesus. That's why we can trust him with even our deepest wounds is he is redeeming and restoring all those things. We also, when we take of the bread and we take of the cup, we not only remember what he has done, we anticipate his return when he truly will set all things right, when the scales of justice will be balanced when all those who trust in him will be gathered together to meet the Lord in the air and be physically transformed so that our earthly bodies now reflect his glorified body. Those are the things that we remember in communion. I want to invite you to, to distance yourself, wear your mask, and give a little space between people. You can, there's wipes here. You can, you can wipe your hands. We want to do everything we can to make sure others are safe. But we also want to celebrate the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up and we're going to, we're going to sing as you um, go and get the elements, the bread and the cup for communion.